I'm really excited about the timing of this episode coming out today. I just adore Ange Morris. She is so generous in talking about her experience. I want to tell you a little bit about her before we jump into the episode. After the death of her father, friend, and grandmother in quick succession, Angela needed a channel to grieve these profound losses. Writing has always been her lifeline through hard times, and grief from the loss of her loved ones was no different. Seeing how this helped her, Angela began to help others with her grief through reflective writing on her social media channels. Angela offers people a soft space to land as they navigate their grief without judgment. She provides reflective writing for grievers who have lost something or someone dear to them. They walk together differently through their healing journey of learning to grow with their grief and not move on from it. Her book, Love Notes to Grievers, is available for pre-order and will be re-released on June 13th, 2023. You can find more details about her in our show notes. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am beyond delighted today to be sitting here with Ange Morris, my online friend. We are meeting for a podcast because I begged her to do this. And she just said she doesn't do it that many times, but for us at Grief is My Side Hustle, she has agreed. So thank you so, so much for being here today. Thank you, Megan, for having me. We have an online sort of mutual love affair. I love your work. I love all the ways in which you show up to to give your own personal learning out into the world. I want to talk about your book, Notes to Grievers, which is going to have a repub coming up in June. But today, let's start with, why don't you just tell us how you come into the world of grief and loss? Yeah, I was thinking about this for a while and there's a two-parter for me. I think it's when I was in my 20s and then when I was in my 30s. In my 20s, I lost a whole entire friend group Mm. slowly due to being in an abusive relationship and the grief that comes with all of it. I think having being in your 20s and getting rocked by something like that and having no real support from your friends because it's so taboo having to quit massage school and leave to be safe and then all of the stuff that gets brought up in that span of being like can I be friends with these people I get really triggered when I'm around so and so because all I can think about is him they're still friends with him I don't feel protected and I think there's a real grief in the loss of friend groups that I don't think it gets talked about enough because that was hard because I, the only real thing I could do is leave. That's right. What, what else is there to do? I mean, you can't really, I can't reconcile being in, like, we used to go to the same parties after the fact. And I was like, how am I doing this? Very dissociative, mind you, but, you know, trying to like fawning and trying to make things work because I didn't, I was 20 something. I didn't want to lose my entire friend group or be, that loud woman who's like a victim or something like that. It was like this grief. It was huge, huge grief. Well, and the other thing that we know about abusive relationships is that they impact your brain and your thinking, right? Like in, in so many ways. And so it's so difficult. Like we haven't said the word boundary, but it's so difficult 
to be a 20 year old who's, who's task or in your twenties, your task is sort of like, who are you going to be when you grow up in the world? Right. And, and friends matter because they're reflecting to us who we are. Did your, did your friend group, were they aware of what was going on for you? Or was that something that was being kept private or concealed? I, I think that I was fairly vocal in the beginning because I was trying to figure out if I was like, I was being told if I was overreacting. So I was reflecting to them. And a lot of my friend, like I lived with a group of guys, one of them being that partner. And so I think I was looking to be protected by my friend group. And when I didn't, it just, it was really, it was quite disorienting, I think is the best word for that. A lot of my girlfriends were supportive. Yeah. But they were like separate friend group. But the friend group that I lived and sort of in that town, it was it was very hard on me. So I think I just felt very betrayed. Um, and then I, I just left town. So I think that was and then I had to come back and finish my school. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I think that's one part of my grief. And then obviously which is what my book is about, is getting rocked in my mid-30s when my friend committed suicide, going to her funeral. So just I live in Vancouver Island and so went back to Ontario for the funeral and then went home after that. So I was not okay. And mm. then the day I got home, my dad had a CAT scan. And then that day, my dad was diagnosed with terminal cancer. So like a day span in between these two, uh, I mean, a, a suicide is, is very disorienting to begin with. It's devastating. It's traumatic. And then going home and seeing my dad and being like, holy, this is so, yeah, those are the two griefs. And then my grandma in mid pandemic. So a year after my dad died in the pandemic. So yeah, so I had like three consecutive deaths, but the the grief of the two, I felt similar. Like, like it, mm-hmm. it is actually quite similar of losing friend groups and losing loved ones. So yeah, those that's how I come to this. Sadly, <laughs> thank you for laying it out there in that concrete way. Cause it's making me think about how we define things, what words we use to define things and words are important because they help us communicate to other people, how we are doing, who we are, how we feel. And I think grief is one of those hard words, right? Like it's this umbrella, that's a collection of emotions and it's something that we carry and we grieve as, as an action, but mourning is the action that other people can see. Grieving can be anything, right? Grieving can be silence. Grieving can be, you know, listening to music. Grieving can be screaming. So I'm curious how in that period of time as sort of like a 20 year old into your thirties across these experiences, did you come to know as a yourself as a person who grieves. If you asked me that question, I would probably say, well, not sleeping is a big part of all of the ways that I grieve. My system doesn't love to be still and rest a lot. I'm curious for you, like, did you, were there ones that were sort of specific to the relationship that didn't show up later? Or is there a way that 
you know yourself as a griever? I don't think I knew it in my 20s. I don't think I had names for anything at that point. So I think my first instinct, and I do write about this because I find it fascinating, is uh, to leave. So uh, to go escape, to adventure, to get away. So when that relationship ended, I quit school and then found a buddy to go to Southeast Asia with and went there for three months. So I think my way is to sort of flee the situation in the context of my dad dying and my friend dying. I think my first instinct was very somatic and visceral, like my throat started to constrict. My breath becomes labored and things like that start to happen. So, I mean, the acute grief response is a little different than like, how do I know myself as a griever? I know myself as a griever because I have to write things down. If it's so big, I have to write it down because I cannot keep it inside. So that was my way, obviously. When my dad, uh, shortly after my dad died, it was pen to paper, trying to make sense, trying to make sense of these profound losses. But I think in my 20s, it was more, and I, I can be proud of myself for this. I think in my 20s, I went to drinking uh-huh. escapism, uh-huh. dating other boys, like just trying to shut it down. I had done enough work, I think in my, you know, coming into my mid thirties that I knew I don't drink, uh, first of all. So like none of these major coping tactics were an option for me. So it was, yeah, yeah like my sleep was disrupted as well. Similar to you just a heaviness in the chest and things like that. That's when I know I'm grieving. And sometimes I don't even recognize it now. Oh, me neither. You know, cause I'm like, I'm fine. I'm most of the time I'm fine. And then the other day something happened and I felt the heaviness in my chest and was like, oh, you're, you're feeling that all encompassing feelings of grief. Right. So. I really appreciate you saying that because I think people think, oh, you're in the world of grief. Like you must know all the things and, you know, your writing is really gorgeous and you are attentive to your own system. I mean, that's sort of your MO. And so for you to say like, oh, and I don't always know. I mean, that just gives us as a listener, a real picture of how hard this shit is. Yeah. Like that's how hard it is. It is. It, I think, yeah, you nailed it. It's just, I can know so much about myself intellectually, but sometimes I don't recognize what it is. And I don't know if that's because of my neurodivergence, like that I'm just starting to understand, but, you know, sometimes I can't name stuff. And I think that's why I write. I also write in a way that like my wish for the world, a lot of the time, like it's not so much just something that I've mastered. It's like my wish for us grievers, my wish for relationships. My, my hope is that we can, you know, it doesn't mean I've mastered it. If, if anything, it's the things that I struggle with the most is what I write about. <laughs> well, I, it's I interesting. It's interesting that you say that because one of the things I always ask people who have like created a product out of their grief, one of the questions I always ask is, did you know when you were doing this, that this was going to be for other people as well as for you? And I feel like with your writing, it from the very beginning, from the very beginning of how you approach it, it's clear it's for everyone, that you're inviting us all into it. Was that always the way or were you just writing to yourself? When it was you- a bit of both. 
a bit of both. I mean, and I think that, I think that's how my brain is wired because what I'm going through is a hundred percent what other people are going through. So to me, there is no difference. Yeah. Truly. Like, I think when I was abused, you know, I talked about these things openly because I was like, why would I keep this to myself? There's other people going through this. So I think there's just a natural response that, yeah, of course I'm writing my experience, but I know that my experience is not just mine. It's going to be other people's too. I think that's why my writing resonates is that I'm, I keep, I keep myself in mind, but I, I don't really see the difference too much. That's fascinating to me. And I want to talk more about this because one of the things I think I hear from grievers as being exquisitely painful, but also sometimes something that they protect is that their grief does feel very individual to them. And that some of the pain of being out in the world is the belief, right? It's just a belief that nobody can really understand what they're going through. And so there's this isolation that can happen and this othering that can happen. And it sounds like, and you mentioned it real quick, we were going to talk about it, that whether it's on account of neurodiversity, there's preconceived notion that you have, which is actually collective. That, that if you feel this, everybody must feel, which actually sounds like better logic. It sounds yeah. like human logic. Yeah. And I've seen, I've seen different camps of grief educators and experts say like, this is very much, uh, you feel alone because you have to get through it and it, 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 you feel alone because you are alone. And I agree to some extent, but I also, again, that brain piece of me never yeah. felt that way. Of course, I felt isolated when I lost friends yeah. to grieving and things like that. And I was like, boo-hoo. But there is a part of me that just sees the interconnectedness. And even when I was grieving immensely, I still had room in my brain for like people's wins and people's like, that's just how I work because I don't, I don't my capacity to have different things and different logics coming into my brain work. And so to me, I I know that it's alone and you have to get through it. But I think because I work so diligently in processing my grief that I can get to a place of not being so much about me personally. Does that make sense? Like, it absolutely makes sense. It, and you're teaching me something which is really important and I shouldn't be shocked by, but you, but I, but I am, which is that, you know, everybody comes to this with their bodies and minds as they are, right? Like their bodies and minds. So some people like lots of hugging when they're grieving and other people don't, it may be because they have a sensory issue or it may not. And so you're just reminding me that for some people to feel in their series of emotions that they are the only person in the world that has ever grieved this way, it's probably not distinct to this moment of grief. That probably when they go through a breakup, they're also grieving in that way, or when they didn't get into the college that they wanted, or when they didn't get the job that they wanted, that the way in which they feel other has probably been decorated across their lives, a trauma history, whatever it is. Yeah, exactly. But it sounds like your brain gave you the sort of just understanding and the processing that you were doing gave you the bandwidth to really understand that people 
are connected in this experience. Yeah. And I think that's something that I've come to in, in the last three and four years where I just feel so deeply moved by it instead of inhibited by it. Mm -hmm. And I love that part of myself. Like I'm so proud of the person that I am in these moments because of that. Cause I, I always have this undertone of just like, just share because someone else, you know, like do it because someone else might feel moved by it or things like that. It's just like, I just don't see a real separation with the grieving experience. I, I, again, I know you have to go through it. You have, you're the one that has to sit your ass in the chair at therapy. If that's your, you know, that's what I did. Yeah. It was, it was so helpful. I still go. I, I don't mess around when it comes to processing stuff because I know what it's like. I spent 10 plus years in a, you know, not dealing with the abuse. Right. So I think I, I had, I also had some of that trauma come up and I think we don't talk enough about that where like all the trauma responses come. And one of my trauma responses, which I find very fascinating, which I do talk about in the book and it's really embarrassing, but I'll leave it for that personal essay. But I will say one of my big trauma responses is acting as if I'm on my deathbed. That's a, it's this weird response in acute grief where I'm like, nothing matters. Everything, like any, any beef you've had with someone, it just doesn't fucking matter. Like, how does this matter? And then, so my first part of my acute grief was literally like a bleeding heart, just like getting stopped on (laughs) because I was going and trying to like fix relationships or like, you know, revive relationships. Cause I was literally acting as if I was on my deathbed and you know, so I have so many stories like that that are just so hilariously now embarrassing, but just, I don't know what turns on my my brain. I'm just like, none of this makes sense. Every person has their shit. Let's just fix this, you know, like leave the earth. Like I'm not leaving the earth, but my brain thinks like, okay, let's just, let's just do this. So anyway, I do write about that in, uh, yeah. But I love, I love that, you know, one of the things I talk about on this podcast and I, because I found it so useful for me and I use it as a clinician is, is IFS intensive family, intensive family services. That is a, that is a description (laughs) of IFS, but that is more, if you're having difficulty with your children in your IFS internal family systems, which is Dick Schwartz, the idea that we have these parts of us that are trying to protect us. And so I love hearing that when you are in really deep grief, what you have, who steps to the front of the line, who is the most compassionate mother, Teresa, and is just going to see the big picture for everything. And she's going to fix all the broken relationships. And, you know, we're going to get to the end of a Disney movie real quick here, because it's, we're going to fade to black and it's love is the only thing that matters. And of course that doesn't work, right? (laughs) Not everybody got on that bus with you. And not everybody is ready to like heal all the wounds. But my brain did not know that. My brain was just like, what in the hell? Get on board, people. What are you doing? My dad died. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) My dad died. See the big picture. Don't go to work. It's time to, you know, 
I really love that. Again, it's it, to me, I'm like, oh, that'd be a good, great question to just ask people like who stepped to the front? Because I think a lot of people talk about the doer part of them, right? Like they did the funeral and then they cleaned out the house and they did. And then a year later, they're like, oh my God, there's nothing left to do. And they start to feel all the feelings of things. My experience with my grief was I had so much anger instead of the, you know, feeling all of the sadness, I didn't go to deep levels of compassion. I went to like, who the fuck do you think you are asking me to do anything for you? Don't you know how much pain I'm in? You know, how dare you just think that we should be talking about the carpool? Like, I don't want to talk about that. And I, and that's the work I've done is really understanding that that is a trauma response for me. And I don't know about, I mean, I'd be interested to know how did people respond to your compassion? Because obviously people don't respond to being blasted by anger all that well. And there's some damage that I did that can't be undone from some of that time. Okay. Well, definitely resonate with that because that also did happen to me. So I won't lie to you that, you know, this compassionate piece comes and then also I had that experience of not having the capacity for people to, to, to rise to the occasion. That's Mm -hmm. where the anger came, where it was just like, are you freaking kidding me? You know? So I think I definitely had that with certain friends and I don't know if that is, again, like you said, I don't know if that's fixable. Uh, I don't melt down often, but I definitely had, I probably, I went on on an apology tour (laughs) <laughs> a couple of years later. With a lot of s'more set. We're on the apology tour. Oh, I needed to own some stuff. And I do re- appreciate that about myself that I do reflect enough to, I won't make excuses for myself that grief gives you the right to do that. Yes. I literally had nothing else in the tank. <laughs> so right. uh, yeah, most people were gracious. Not everyone was, but most were but I did, I did get the, I think that was like a couple of weeks after it was like when I was dealing with the logistics mm-hmm. and, and to like, to be, you know, not to make excuses for myself, but the day my dad died, my grandma had a heart attack and almost died. So my Jeez. mom's mom. So just to give it context of trauma. So my dad died in midday and so this is around like 10 o'clock. My brother had gone to tell his kids that are like the dad, my dad had died. And my mom and I are just like, I took like two melatonins. I'm like, see you later world. Yeah, uh, get a phone call. And it's a frantic phone call that your mother was found uh, slumped in blue. Uh, she's being rushed to the hospital. So we literally had to get our clothes back on, go to the hospital, which we had been going to with my dad being possible, sick with uh, cancer, and then spent the whole night there and then waiting for my aunts to get there the next day. And they like took their time. And I was not happy about that because I was like, my dad literally just died. Can you get here? And like, because we had to go back into the hospital. So yeah, I think people don't see it. They don't realize what you're dealing with. Right. And, and yeah, we don't care about the fucking carpool right now because my grandma almost died the same day my dad did, or, you know, things like that. And, you know, uh, I'm not proud of those moments, of course, but at the time 
(laughs) There was nothing I could do. do, Right. I mean, that's the tricky part. And I talked to my kids about this, which is like, sometimes the best you can do is a real disappointment, even to yourself. And so that's, you know, that's what tests relationships. If you can go back and ask for an apology. I mean, I will admit that like, not all my anger is anger that I feel like wasn't justified. I think some of the things people have tried to apologize to me and I can't accept an apology that I can't. And, and when I think about those things, it's probably because there were cracks in those relationships for a long time to begin with. Right. And so my best friend says this about having kids, like, you know, you're either going to find out about what your family of origin did wrong or what's wrong in your marriage when you bring a baby into the house. Like, and I think grief does that too, is that it puts pressure on things that otherwise, you know, had little fault lines and they'll either hold or they won't. But I do appreciate the truth of it is I did the best that I could. And the best that I could was really disappointing to me and other people. And there are some people who I was able to show up and say, like, I'm ready to hear how you were hurt. But even then it's like, oh, do I really want to hear how you were hurt about my behavior when my mom died and I had PTSD and had to check myself into a facility? Like, okay, I'll listen. Yeah, you nailed it. It's it takes it takes a lot of processing to get to the point where you can sit with someone still angry at you or still not getting it or being defensive towards, you know, I tried to show up for you or whatever and it's like oh, I so get you now. I'm in a place of surrender and acceptance of no one knows how to do this, so why would I expect anyone you know, including myself in that conversation. I mean, would I appreciate some people being different? Yeah, but that just isn't useful. Mm -hmm. So I'm just in a real good place of what happened, happened. I did my apology to her. I meant it. (laughs) You know, I did the best I could. I'm done with the shame piece. Yeah. I'm done with that. Actual compassion now. Just an understanding. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, Considering what I had gone through, I think I did okay. It wasn't yeah. great, like you said, but the place I am now, I can be proud of. And yeah, I'm good I with love that. that. I God, I really love that. And and I'm thinking about what we define as sort of grief work. And so there's the normalizing of the grief experience, and then there's how each person has to figure out how to do how to process through their own energy. And you use therapy, and I use and writing, and I use. I use more writing, I think this time around than therapy. It was very fascinating to be a therapist who suddenly was like, I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to, I don't want you to say the shit to me that I already know that I read in the book. I want different insight and different ways of connecting and feeling. And that was another thing that I was thinking when you were talking about how your brain sort of allowed you to bring in the collective that, that there are these theories about, you know, humanity essentially that we relax or we feel like we make more sense in connection to other people. And so there's something really like lovely about the idea that when you were going through this and part of your process was understanding, like just deeply understanding that you were like other people in your grief, that you were, whatever you were feeling was going to make sense to other people. And because again, lots of people don't feel that way and that you offer that out in this gorgeous book that you've put out. I want to ask this question 
because we talked about it a little bit off mic, but I keep thinking about it, which is you got a, you got a diagnosis, an actual clinical diagnosis that wasn't just related to grief, but in part of your grief storm that I think gave you some insight into yourself in general. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and how that maybe is connected to grief? Yeah, I think being diagnosed at 37 or yeah, 38, I can't remember. Not that long ago. I'm 39 now, but being diagnosed, I think it was like two years into the grief or the deeper grief. And finally just being like, something is different with me and watching some videos and things like that. I finally just was like, I'm just going to go talk to someone about this. And it made sense. It like, I've been ADHD since I was a little girl. It makes sense at all. But I think grief is what made the ADHD more obvious. Yeah. Can you You say more about that? Like, how did you see that? Like, oh, this is different than maybe. Because I had been processing my grief enough to know what was grief and what was the trauma piece, but there was something else. I just had a gut feeling and just really sat with it and what, like, what would that mean? And what does it mean to be a a neurodivergent person? It was hard to, I think I've been trying to fit into the neurotypical way for so long that I didn't even know how to accept myself as a griever at first, you know, like what I had been through and feeling alienated from certain friends and feeling already different to begin with. Like I'm very different from a lot of my grade school friends and high school friends. You know, I'm, I'm no kids, you know, all my friends mostly have kids, you know, things like that. Like I, I live differently. So I always sort of felt a little bit outer outsidery, but yeah. So I think, so I think when I was spending all that time reflecting and being with the grief, it just every, another puzzle piece came together and it was so life-changing for me to understand this piece of myself not just my grief but this portion of myself that you know I I always always felt like I was failing as an adult you know things like that and it's like now I feel like I'm failing at friendships because you know I lost certain like some pretty pivotal friendships as I was grieving so it was like what is wrong with me Yeah. So I went down, like, I think the shame spiral actually really helped me get diagnosed because it was like, what's wrong with me? Like, why do, why are my friends running away from me? Why don't they understand me? It's really hard to look back on that time. It was so dark. Like it was, (laughs) it was pretty rough. My -hmm. poor partner is such a gem. Like he had to really sit with me on this and let me work through it. But Uh, the neurodivergent and grieving is, it makes sense now. It didn't before I was, I was in a lot of shame about it to begin with. So, well, it sounds like part of the, right. So shame is what's wrong with me, right? I mean, that's the, it's not the, what happened to you. It's what's wrong with me. And I'm thinking about from a therapist standpoint, most of what we're trying to do is say, there's nothing wrong with you, but that totally minimizes when you experience something as 
unattainable in the way that other people seem to attain it, whether it's like a sense of peace or a sense of understanding or just getting out the door. And I I don't know why this is what's coming to me, but I remember the very first time I went to go talk to somebody, I have really problematic eating. I'm sure it falls into a category of some someone's definition of an eating disorder, mostly what it is, I don't eat enough. And that got really terrible when I was, when my mom died, I just pretty much stopped eating. And I sat with a clinician because I was like, which of the problems am I going to address? So I found someone who did health at any size, which I think is an incredible modality for treating eating disorders. And what she said to me, over and over again was just eat intuitively, just be intuitive and then just eat that way. And I was like, this is like, you're saying I should be a different ethnicity. <laughs> like, yeah. like, why do you keep saying these words at my face is what it felt like to me. If I could do what you were talking about, I would do it. And what I know as someone who's worked in the world of trauma, those kinds of going inside your body and being connected to impulses like hunger. Oh my God, that was cut off at age nine for me. Mm -hmm. And so to go to a clinician who was like, just do this, just do this, just do this over and over again, (laughs) made me just completely sure that there was something wrong with me. And the thing is, there kind of is something wrong, not in a shameful way, but look, the trauma from my younger childhood has left some scar tissue that still needs to end up being healed. And that is connected to how I ended up with more trauma when my mom died. So I really appreciate the way that you are talking about this right now, which is actually, if you live in this world that expects neurotypical folks and you are showing up neurodivergent, what other message are you going to get other than this is wrong about you? Yeah. And I think that that's been most of the work lately is me undoing a lot of this. And there's grief in that too, because I used to be really well liked. I I was very good at fitting in, not so much. I think I was very much my neurodivergent self in grade seven and eight. Like I had a mullet, you know, just like- I recently had a mullet. I cut it off. My wolf cut was a mullet. So I can can join the mullet. Yeah. So I think- you know, and then you you get into grade nine and I had short hair and that was like not cool. So it's like, okay, I grow your hair out and you, you have to get a boyfriend because apparently that's like a thing you have to do. So I like did that and, you know, I had popular friends and I was, I blended really well. Yeah. You cracked the code of how to appear as if. Yes. There's lots but, of, there's lots of folks who are, who get good at that. And as I continue to unravel this I think that that's you know and with alongside the grieving it's like oh I realized like even in my friendships like I was just a much of the appeasing type of what can I do for you when grief came into my life this time around I was expecting people to show up for me and when that didn't happen there was like again, an unraveling of the ADHD piece and how I show up in relationships to my friends and also the grief of it's really hard 
for me to ask for support because I'm so good at giving it. I love my friends, but I, it was very difficult for, with certain relationships to say, I'm going to need you now. And then one of my friends who I really trusted with my grief ended up ghosting me because we got into a few tiny conflicts and she just, yeah. So I think like all of that though was so important and pivotal to me kind of finally unmasking myself completely and being okay with someone ghosting. Like I would never be okay with that. I would go back and try to get answers and things like that. And now I'm just, I'm way more understanding that I'm not going to be for everyone and that I am actually quite triggering to people based on who I am and what I share and how I grieve. And that's the neurodivergent anthem really is we as neurodivergents in a neurotypical world can be really useful if you let us. But if you want us to just make you comfortable and fit in, then I'm probably not your person to begin with. <laughs> so, uh. I'm really struck by, because I, I identify as a child of trauma, right? So there was a death I'm in sort of my family circle when I was nine and I had what I imagine it was similar to what you have had in getting an ADHD diagnosis, which is like when it's true and for you, it's a relief. You read the pages and you're like, oh my God, like I thought this just made me so different than other people. And it does, that is the truth. I am different than other people, but it's on account of something. It's not just because like everybody else is one way and I'm the freak on the outside. So what I'm really struck by when you're talking is how similar your story feels to mine in the people pleasing, in the code switching, in the learning to kind of hide in the middle. That's all I ever wanted was to just be in the inside of a pack of people. I had friends who I went to high school with who wanted to be like the star. And to me, that just seemed like a really bad idea. Like why <laughs> would you? Such a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, that and, sounds horrible. And even, and even still now with having kind of a public presence, I, I can rock back and forth with some of that because I, you know, the trauma, while you can begin to heal it and shift it, it doesn't, it still has a truth to it still a story that I've lived. And so there are times where somebody says something crappy in one of my, in a DM to me or on my page. And I'm like, oh my God, what am I doing? I need to hide. I need to take down my account. And what's in the back of my mind, I'm wondering whether just being neurodivergent is in fact a trauma, meaning it is a thing that is true that then becomes a definition of how you are out in the world, right? Like that's kind of how we define traumatized. I don't know what you think about that, but I'm really struck by your ADHD diagnosis sounds a whole lot like my childhood trauma diagnosis to me. Yeah, I think, I I mean, I think they can relate in a lot of ways because a lot of neurodivergence do experience trauma, of course. Of course I have trauma. I mean, even with this book coming out, it's so hard for me to, you know, I can write and write and write and that's my comfort, but anything about being seen a little bit too seen, you know, from doing book, uh, you know, like a book launch or a, is terrifying to me. I'm, I'm okay with this. This is a stretch, but it, 
it does affect my life. It does. So that blending that you're talking about as a neurodivergent is very real. It makes my omega, like my, I can't remember the name of like that. The amygdala. Yeah. So that goes into like a primitive state of just like, I'm not safe. And I'm really, really working on that. And with the grief and being online for so many years, like you said, with the DMs and the you're broken or whatever, things like that doesn't affect me because it's a stranger. It's, it's more the stuff of being seen in a bigger light is, is harder for me and Mm. stuff that I'm working on for sure. But it's obviously not enough to keep me quiet, you know, (laughs) Uh, but I do see some people like yourself and other people doing things out in the world or getting in front of a group of people and I'm in awe of it but also like I don't know if you've seen the fainting goat videos on YouTube but just (laughs) google that and think of me that's the vibe that I've been bringing since I was young (laughs) I'm really just I'm in awe I'm in awe of people who find themselves in places of such unbelievable discomfort and have to stay there anyway, right? Like you did say right before we got on that you don't do a lot of podcasts and there are other people who are like, who would die to get on a podcast. So I just am really appreciative that part of the message that we get as an audience is that it's important to be on a podcast and to speak with your voice and to share the stories and that part of what I'm really relating to is I always call it, you know, energetically expensive, like getting up in front of a group and teaching about grief and loss. I could be high off that for five days. You know, what is the worst for me is like walking into a fucking PTA meeting or a back to school night. I wrote about it in my, I mean, having a panic attack and a back to school night for some reason, walking into people who are literally my neighbors who are there about their children. And I'm like, I don't know who to sit with. I don't know who to talk to. I don't know whether that to me is, I mean, I could have to sleep for three days after that. I could have to, and people don't assume it, right? It's like being neurotypical. You're out here, you're writing, you have so much to say. They would assume, hey, she'll come be on my podcast and talk about her book. People don't understand that I basically hate to socialize. I hate it. Interesting. I like one-on-one with people and I have deep, deep relationships, but holy moly, my system is like, and now we sleep for the weekend because you went back to school night. It's interesting because it's not across the board for you. No, you you can do one thing, but then the other, you know, like, because I don't see them as separate either. But now that you're saying that, yeah, I can see the difference. And I mean, I think it's down to vulnerability, right? Yeah. And I, well, and I also, what I was thinking when you were talking earlier is I really do think it's about the energy that gets created in your system by things, right? Even just as I'm talking about this, I'm going really cold, which tells me that I am telling the truth about myself at this moment. So, you know, I do trauma therapy with clients and that, that work, that intense individual work feels like cocaine to me. Like it gives me unbelievable like belief in healing and spiritual connection. And even though people are telling me horrifying stories, so people will, you know, people say, how can you do the work that you're doing? And I'm like, I don't know how to explain it to you, but it's like a gas tank that gets filled. Mm -hmm. 
And in COVID and after my mom died, that totally shifted for me. That it wasn't a gas tank that was getting filled anymore. It felt like, why are you talking to me about your problems? I can't show up for you in the same way. I haven't changed how I love my clients, but I also am aware that we're not just one way. It's not like we're born and we're this way in seventh grade. And then we're that way forever. We're kind of always evolving. Right. And so how the energy is inside our system how it is for me today, if I talk to you in two years, maybe I'll, I'll be like, no, actually, <laughs> and I had it totally yeah. wrong. You know, it's a different it, story now. It actually reminds me of, I was listening to a podcast, Glennon Doyle's podcast, and she has just came out talking about an eating disorder. She's had an eating disorder, but it's a different one. I guess it was yes, she anorexia. Was, she believed herself bulimic and now she yeah. understands she has anorexia. So, and with this part of her healing journey, speaking to what you just said, she no longer feels like she can public speak right now. And I find that so fascinating that she's starting to embody herself and the, her embodiment is telling her, I don't want to do that. That's right. And so, I mean, that confuses me completely because here I am trying to figure out how to to do it. Yeah. How to do those things. And so I'm like, am I just in alignment of who I am? But anyway, but I thought that was interesting piece to bring up. I love the women who are telling the truth about the evolution of coming to understand themselves. I mean, one thing I think every time I listen to Glennon's podcast, I get this like white hot fury. I always listen to it when I'm coming home from dropping my daughter at school. And I just think, oh my God, women are maybe men too, but I am only talking about women. There are stakes driven between are knowing about ourselves and the way that we are told we're supposed to be in the world. And, and so then, you know, whatever you turn 40 and you're like, I'm done, I'm done with that. It's too much. It's too much of a betrayal. I don't have that much life forever to live. And I'm, and I've seen some things and now I gotta, and now I gotta like take all this furniture out of the house and figure out what belongs in here. I love women like that. And I think that's what keeps me going is when I meet people like yourself and Christy Tate, and then I see people like Glennon unpacking what she's unpacking. And, you know, again, like, I think it's that there's certain people in the world that say, yeah, I'm going to unpack this because I know I'm not the only one. That's right. And I just appreciate that about her. And I appreciate Christy. And I'm really looking forward to reading your memoir. I think You're so sweet. Is, December, is that coming out? Yeah, December? December, but I'll send you an early copy. I'd love to read it. I just saw, I can't, I can't talk about it today, but I will show you when we clip off. I just saw my cover for the first (gasps) time. I was, I had better makeup on earlier, but I cried for like, I can't wait. I was like, I can't believe this is the first cover. And they were like, no, Megan, this is the 14th cover. We didn't show you the other ones. That's awesome. (laughs) Good. That's great. Oh yeah. I'm very much looking forward to reading that. Oh, you're the sweetest. Can I, so can I ask you a question, which is probably really unfair But for people who consider themselves to be neurotypical, and I want to say that because as I've gotten older, I'm so much more aware of, oh, that is because I have sensory issues. That is because, you know, I code this information differently. Like, you know, I grew up and I was born in 1974. We have a lot better understanding of how brains work and develop. And I had a lot of shame about the fact that I can't spell. I mean, I still can't spell the word vacation. How many C's does it have in it? I have no idea. I never get it right. 
but I had a lot of shame about that. And I just couldn't understand how other kids who like weren't even good students and didn't even try would get a hundred on their spelling tests. And I had such a difficult time. I don't feel any of that now because I have a much better understanding of like how language is coded and how we graphically understand things. But I'm curious, like, are there things that for people who have folks who identify as neurodivergent, are there things that folks who consider themselves neurotypical could be made aware of either to ask or to show up with curiosity or to not assume it's X, Y, and Z way? that would be helpful for us to, to know. I'm not, I don't mean to ask you to speak for a whole community, but I do wonder about that. I mean, I can speak to my own experience with my partner and what we do. Yeah. I would love that. Yeah. Yeah. Him being neurotypical and myself being neurodivergent and also to speak to your not being able to spell, I used to hide in the bathroom so I didn't have to read out loud. So just say, right. We all have those things, right? I mean, we just, yeah. So with Kieran and I, my partner, the biggest thing is when I'm having a executive function issue is just him looking at me and just having an understanding of what's going on. So I want to get off this couch, but I cannot get off this couch we try different techniques of like one, two, three, or, you know, like maybe you do have to stay there. Sometimes when it's a a thing like making dinner, because there's so many moving parts to making dinner, it can be overwhelming. I've found different tools that work for me now, but he can, if he just hangs out with me in the kitchen, yeah, things like that, like, and not, thinking it's weird because it's just the way my brain works. So if you sit there and and read the recipe out loud to me, it's a way for us to have intimacy because I feel loved and understood and he gets to chit chat with me and I'm hilarious. So, you know, (laughs) win-win. Yeah. So I think the way I sort of do things with my partner is I just teach him about myself in order to know your neurodivergency is to know how it works. Right. What works for you? What doesn't work for you? You know, loud sounds in the car, are like a no go for me, yeah. uh, things like that. So I think speaking from the experience of still learning, I'm still learning about this. Yeah. I think some people take medication. I tried one secondary med for a bit, but it's, you know, neurotypicals just have to know that we're living in the world set up for them. Yeah. And that it can be hard. And I mean, I'm not one to, what would I say? Like, I'm not one to, to dwell on it. I, I, it's, it is what it is. Right. So let's make this work. But I think neurotypicals have to realize. And again, I think of the book industry is a good example of that is like, you know, you have an editor or Uh, someone a publisher and you have someone that's a neurodivergent like we work differently that's right so so having people in publishing with neurodivergent you know like to be there for those type of writers because we aren't going to want to do things you know we might not want a book launch we might but how do we support these people who are you know very different they add so much to this world I mean most neurodivergents that were inventors or ADHD, you know? So it's, it's something that we, when they're gone, we appreciate them, but it, as 
a process and watching us work can be very chaotic for a neurotypical because sometimes we forget appointments. Sometimes the way we work and, and maybe send an email erratically at 11 at night or something, you know, doesn't make sense. But because we're in our creative zone, a lot of the times it's just learning to adapt and be able to see the benefit of us, I guess that's, and my partner does. What it's making me think of, well, and you're talking about sort of the co-creation of that. And I appreciate the way that you said it, which is like, you know, you communicate what you can know and you have to spend some time getting to know it. Right. And so all of that can sound simple, but you and I know that's really super hard, like sitting on a couch and being curious about what might help you in this moment to get off the couch is way harder than it sounds because you've got to you got to strip back judgment. You have to strip back shame. You have to strip back the past ex- negative experiences. I mean, there's a lot of bullshit that gets in the way. And I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about how much that relates to grief in general, right? Like what people want is for grief to be some sort of linear experience that is explicable. There are lots of books out there like this, or there are experts who are like, you know, I'll give you the 10 fa- fastest ways to whatever your grief. And what we know is like, yes, what we can say is that grief is embodied. And so people have, have physical experiences, emotional, spiritual, but that yours and mine might look totally different that you might need to run away. And I might need to sit still and that what works really only is being curious and having a co-created conversation about that. And what I think is really hard is that when you are the griever, you are also underneath a 60,000 pound rock of feeling about your loss. So when you are underneath that rock, being able to communicate, it's dark in here, I could use a glass of water, is so fucking hard. And so in that early part of grief, saying to the people and the supporters who are around, what, what do you do well that you can show up with? Like, what do you, are you good company? Then go sit with Ange and read a cookbook with her and keep her company. Are you good comp or bring her dinner? What do you do? Well, not how are you going to solve her problem? Because that is not possible. What would it be like to help her communicate what she needs? Because what we all know between brain and body is that that's nearly impossible in those early days. Ask a griever, what do they need? And you're never going to hear from them again. I think that's, and I think that's the beautiful (laughs) thing that I've learned about the grieving experiences, you know, and, and people do come to me and ask like, you know, my friend, their husband just died. What do I do? And I said, know your friend. Yeah. That's all. And I, I, obviously I expand on that, but I think what we don't realize in relationships is how superficial some of them really are That's right. or how much that we don't actually share of ourselves with our friends based on safety or past trauma or whatever. But I think the most beautiful thing we can do for our grieving people, our neurodivergent people is to actually get curious and know each other. It's the most beautiful. That is why we're here. That's right. (laughs) We're here to know each other. That is why, that is the whole purpose. Like every, we've saw other people do it alone, go it alone. They're not happy. So to me, connecting is the most important piece. So then you have to look at the culture and say, well, why do we have a bunch of grievers who feel utterly alone, losing friendships, losing partnerships? And to me, that tells us that the culture is sick. (laughs) That's right. 
and I have no interest in in that. I have interest in building. That's right. And being with the goodness of this and what this can bring. It's horrible. We know that. So what can we do to keep moving in a direction of connection and support that feels good? And I think it is to know your people, which would be vulnerable. Not everyone can do that. You know, it's a whole web. (laughs) Yeah, but I think the concept about changing a culture is not that we're going to fix it, but that we're going to stretch it, right? And so I yeah. think one of the, you know, I got lots of soapboxes, but one of the one that I like to stand on is like, I know it's really not fair that the griever has to say anything to anyone. All the people that they've, like you said a minute ago, all the people that they've invested in by showing up for their hard stuff, those people should turn around and know exactly how to show up for you, except that is not the way it works. Right. And that also isn't the way it works with your partner when you give them the most thoughtful gift in the world. And like, they're not a thoughtful gift giver. You have to circle the thing in the magazine. Yeah. These are choices. Right. And so we take away, if we can take away the meaning that everything is supposed to be different than the way that it is, except that this is the way that it is. And that you as a griever are going to have to tell some folks back the fuck up with the thing that you're saying, or could you show up this way or no, don't come now or, Hey, please invite me to everything, but I might say no, that, that my understanding of myself as a griever is very new because I'm just learning it. And I learn it every time I grieve and your ability to show up for me is new because we've never done this before. That's a beautiful way. And I think just us having this conversation, I hope, well, I mean, mostly grievers listen to grief podcasts, but I think <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's be honest. You're, you let's really don't. It's the people that need to hear this are not listening. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think that's a beautiful way to put it and, and to be with the culture as it is and, you know, hope for something different and to embody something different, which is, I think we're both doing that or trying to. <laughs> so I can appreciate I really, that. I really appreciate you talking about the ADHD diagnosis. I really appreciate you talking about the concept of losing friends as a, as a, as, you know, you described it as, as significant a way of feeling grief as losing someone that you love. And I really appreciate the way that you have put those together for us because grief is less about what happened to you and more about what it means for you and who you become in it. And I do want to, I do want to talk about your book really quick before I let you go, because I do think, I think there are a small percentage of folks who in their worst moments, in their hardest and most difficult, create something that is a gift and useful to the rest of the world. Maybe we would all like to do that. We don't all get to do it, but can you just tell us a little bit about Notes to Grievers and when it comes out, when it's being re-released and maybe even how to get our hands on it? Yeah, so the book itself, I didn't really know when the uh, boutique publisher approached me from Eastern Canada I didn't really know they wanted more to it. It was a small book, so they wanted it double the size. And I was like, okay, well, what do, what do I want to share now? Make the font real big. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, that's why I shared those personal essays. I felt a real calling to talk about the cultural piece, to talk about the friend 
that ghosted me, not from a perspective of anger or anything like that, but my experience with it and what happened in that time. I think it's important to share those stories. I'm glad that I wrote more in this one and it still has the tinier reflections throughout it, but the, I think, and it, it gives me a chance to share some of that's the yelling at, you know, yelling at the propane man. That's a story in there. Like yeah. freaking, you know, and, and sharing a little bit of my relationship with my father. And when my friend uh, committed suicide, I, I want people to know where I was coming from. Yeah. And so that this book was a little bit more of an ode to that and, and being processed a little bit more or down the road from it and away from it. I was able to come to those essays yeah, from a perspective of, compassion for the people that were on the other end and understanding and uh, closure that I didn't receive. That's so interesting. I haven't thought of this before, but you know, the idea that like you would come back to the, to the book that you wrote about grief a couple of years later with the reflections of having lived a couple of years later. I bet that is a very interesting process. I bet that's fascinating. It was beautiful. It was a beautiful thing because it showed me where, how far I've come and how much compassion and love I have for those people that are no longer in my life and Mm -hmm. a deep understanding, not so angry. And uh, yeah, that really helped shape this book. And uh, yeah, so it comes out June 13th. That's the publishing date and it's available in Canada for pre-order, but because it's a small publishing house, Uh, people from the States can order it with certain Canadian bookstores, but there's a hefty shipping price. Yeah, of course, but, of course. But I will, I will send we'll figure you it a out. copy. I will send you a copy. And I think I'm going to just get a bunch of books to be able to send to my U S people. At the that sounds, yeah. So, okay, you yeah. Gotta, we gotta, we gotta keep our friends in books. That's uh, my friends in Australia. <laughs> they were like, how are we going to get this to you? But it's coming out here. So just to, just to wrap up, I really want to thank you because I have a better understanding that probably this is going to have cooked you for the rest of the day, what you gave us today, that this is going to have been an energetic outlay (laughs) that that has some ramifications for you. So worth it. Yeah. Well, I I really, it feels like such a big gift. And I, I don't think every podcast guest would say that for that, for some people, it's just like an hour of their their day and then they're going to, you know, go cook dinner. I get to Uh, massage a good friend right after this, who's uh, (laughs) hurt themselves. So it's such, it's such a beautiful day to way to spend my day. So we'll get to have tea and I'll get to treat my friend and uh, it's a great way to round out my day. So I I'll be fine. (laughs) Good. Well, I really, I just really appreciate it because it's such a gift and I have, I mean, meeting you is such a joy and I feel like I have this little energy. I'm like, oh, we're not done. You and I aren't done with each other. I hope we can connect again. Me too. We, we we, we definitely will. Thank you. Thank you. And have a great rest of your day in a massage. Thank you, Megan. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye.